Father, today we ask for the gift of courage. Courage to keep awake and to live holy and faithful lives as we await the coming of your kingdom. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, before we dive into our gospel reading, um, pull, out, pull out this cream sheet. I just, if you're in the room, I want to show you this. The church, in her wisdom, spent a lot of prayerful time putting together the readings week by week. And sometimes I think the quantity of them alone makes it difficult to hear. Um, if you're anything like me, you can sit through five straight minutes of reading from Scripture and not remember a single thing we just read, and kind of, it washes over you, and there's a goodness to that, but part of what we want to do is cultivate an attentiveness to say there's a reason we're reading the different readings that we read, and as we were sitting here reading, I just, uh, I thought I would point this out, because the readings are meant and are intentionally selected to draw out a common theme, a shared theme. And so, uh, for example, in the psalm, as the psalm concludes, it's this longing to put our trust in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Then we had this long reading from Joshua um, in which we're reminded of the way in which God led his people. He took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. As a result of that, it then says, now therefore revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. And then our last reading, again, is talking about God coming to greet his people, God coming to lead his people, um, those who are left until the coming of the Lord. It says, the Lord will descend from heaven and we will be with the Lord forever. And so all of that is meant to kind of lead us into and to give us ears to hear what Daryl just read, which is a gospel reading that tells us two things. The Lord is coming and he expects something of his people when he finds them. And so that's kind of the dual focus of the entire day today. And if you hear it in the collect itself, the collect of the day is really helpful. If you're ever lost on a Sunday and you say, I don't really know what's going on or where my heart and mind's meant to be focused, the collect literally is meant to collect up the prayers of the day, prayers of the people, but also to collect up the themes and kind of say, here's the, the clarity, here's the thesis of where we're headed. And so when it says, O God, whose blessed Son came into the world, that's a clue. We've just read all about God coming into the world. Uh, having this hope, we pray, that we would then purify ourselves as he is pure, that when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him. Uh, we have incredible dignity and worth as children of God, but we also are called sheep, and sheep need a shepherd, because we're dumb. <laughs> and we need to be reminded again and again and again of things that we can miss when they're right in front of us. And so all of this is meant to then hold together to help us see these themes, that we are meant to be people who are ready when the Lord comes. And the way in which Jesus tells this story, it's one of my favorite stories Jesus tells. It's, it's distant and foreign and other, and yet it's remarkably inviting at the same time. It's the story of a feast, of being prepared for a feast. And I'm sure all of you can relate to preparing for a feast, or even just or having someone over for dinner. My wife and I love having people over for dinner. Um, and one of the things, if you've ever hosted someone, whether you like it or not, if you have hosted someone, 
one, we all kind of play the same game, which is for hours in advance of them coming, you are preparing food, you're cleaning your home, uh, getting yourself ready, and the aim is to be ready, and this is the key, ready and waiting. You want it to appear as though this is just how you always live your life. You just threw a few things in the oven and your house is always this clean. Your kids are always this well-behaved. Uh, the idea being you've done all the preparations that are needed so that then you are simply attentively waiting for your guests to arrive. Um, however, this story presents us another problem. What happens when the guest doesn't show up? Everything's ready, you're waiting, you know uh, the expectation. They have said they are coming, that's a key part. They've said, I'll be here and I will join you for this feast, but they have not yet arrived. What do you do? What do you do when they're delayed? Do you uh, eat without them? Do you uh, anxiously call? Do you send a passive-aggressive text? <laughs> do you just call the whole thing off and go to bed? I mean, what do you do? Likely, we, we do not do, most of the time, the one thing that we're told to do, which is when the guest says they'll be there, we wait for them and we keep waiting until they arrive. That's what Jesus tells us to do, and yet the stakes are really high, because it's not just um, a dinner with a few friends. This is meant to be the meal to end all meals. That's the story Jesus is telling. It's why he's very explicit that this is a wedding feast. You may not think of an ancient Jewish wedding as the feast to end all feasts, but they knew how to feast in a way that I think uh, we don't really understand. Uh, we, we struggle to understand. You, if you're married, you, you may have had a wedding feast that you say was pretty epic. You know, you maybe in your mind it felt like the final scene of that film, Crazy Rich Asians. Um, mine was anything but. I got married when I was 20, and so uh, our, our reception had no alcohol. Uh, we had a live band, but about three days before our wedding, the church we were getting married in told us there was no dancing allowed. They had a strict no dancing policy. <laughs> so we had a live band that everyone could just stand and look at while they played music. Um, and we had a dessert reception. Um, and we ordered one of those chocolate fountains. Remember, we got married before weddings got cool. Like, no one was getting married with mason jars out in fields. It was, <laughs> it was just in the church, and it was kind of by the book. And so we, we just did a dessert fountain, you know, like a chocolate fountain. You could put, like, marshmallows and, you know, strawberries or whatever in. That It arrived, and the motor was broken. And so instead of a fountain, we have, uh, for years, with great love, referred to it as our chocolate cauldron, because it was just this kind of boiling vat of chocolate that people kind of just stuck their hands down in, because it, it didn't fountain, it just sat there boiling. Um, that, was, that was my wedding reception. And, and um, with time, you know, time heals all wounds, they say. Uh, with time, we've come to really uh, affectionately remember that evening. But uh, I wouldn't call it the feast and the party to end all parties. And yet, the party to end all parties is what Jesus, in fact, has in mind. And to understand that, we have to understand a little bit of what an ancient Jewish wedding feast would have been like. Even to make sense of the story, if you read it and kind of are struggling to get your head around all the different moving parts and the, you know, the ten virgins and the, in the night, the groom coming and the bride, like what is going on here? I mentioned this last week. In the Jewish imagination, days began at sunset and ended at sunset. A day began in the dark of night, and from sundown to sundown, that was the duration of a day. That was the passing of a day. And so that was true then, was true now of the Sabbath, but it was also true of how they entered into a wedding. And so a wedding began in the dark of night. And the custom was that a groom would leave his home 
Remember, we're not talking about trekking across town for 90 miles. It's all walkable um, most of the time. And so a groom would leave his home, walk wherever he needed to walk to go and then greet his bride, bring her and her servants, her attendants, who are the virgins in this story, bring her attendants and everyone else with him back to his home carrying lamps in the dark of night as they do, symbolically saying, this is the beginning of this new story. I'm leading you into your new home, into your new future. And then they enter into days and days and days of feasting. It's this beautiful, profound image. And it's the reason that time and time again, our Lord uses the picture of a wedding feast as a taste of what the kingdom of God is meant to be like. For his context, it was the greatest possible feast they could imagine, the greatest joy that they knew in their lives. And he's saying that this is the kingdom of God. This is what it means when Jesus, the groom, comes to his people and leads them in procession, leads them into their ultimate home. It's this incredibly powerful and beautiful image. And yet it comes to us today with very real words of warning because he says, in this beautiful procession, you have a group that's prepared and a group that's not prepared, a group that's ready and a group that is not ready for when he comes those who are wise and those who are foolish. And the way in which he differentiates them is through this picture of oil, of an oil lamp. And I actually love this image right now because in my own family life, we've recently started using oil lamps. We have one. We have one oil lamp. Um, For about a year or so, we've been praying as a family with candles as a part of our prayer. Um, But I I read somewhere about, you know, you can still use oil lamps. You read this and think like, no one does that anymore. But you you do and you can. And so we we purchased um, a a simple lamp to use. And it's in, in some ways for us a very small and simple but tangible way to practice attentiveness because everything else in our life comes to us prepackaged, prepared, and ready to go in an instant. And to use an oil lamp, you have to keep it filled with oil. You fill up, um, for us, it's just like a glass uh, kind of oil um, vase. Uh, You fill it with olive oil. You have to have a a cork float that goes in it. You have to have an actual wick to go in the float. You have to tend to that wick so it doesn't go out, which sounds tedious. And like, it's really fun to me. And you may think like, you need new ways to have fun. But for me, it's really exciting because it's a way to practice what we're talking about, which is living an attentive life and being prepared and ready. And even in something as simple as keeping an oil lamp ready It's a way to say, I'm trying to tend to these things in my own life. And so I didn't even know this was on our horizon uh, for preaching. And I'm really excited, though, as it arrives, because in some way, I get it. I get what he's talking about. You have to be ready with your oil lamp if you want to actually walk with the groom in the dead of the night, because you need a light to guide you there. You can't pull out your iPhone and turn on the flashlight. And what he's also saying multiple times is you can't rely on the preparedness of other people. You can't assume your friends will have a light that you can then kind of follow along with. No, he says everyone has to have their own light. Every servant is expected to be waiting and ready with a light when the groom arrives. And so in a very simple way, Jesus is telling us something profound about the human life. As we journey through life, it's like a wedding feast, and we are guests at the wedding, invited by the groom to journey with him to our final home, and yet we are expected to be ready. We're expected to have lamps that are filled with oil, because that's the only difference in the two kinds of servants. 
those who have oil and those who do, who do not. And so it seems to then make sense for us to take a minute and say, well, well, then what is oil? What in this story is oil signifying? If the difference is whether or not you and I have oil, what does the oil mean? And throughout history, theologians, leaders in the church have time and time again said the oil is a reference to love. Oil is a, le- a reference to a life of charity. The fruit of the spirit, we are told, is love. And so the picture then is those who are ready are those who journey with the groom with a life defined by love and charity and goodness and compassion. And that that is what rises to the top in our lives. St. Paul says that love is the still more excellent way. St. Augustine compares oil to love in the way that love, like oil, will always rise to the top, which is a really beautiful image. Um, He puts it this way, Augustine says, for oil swims above all liquids, pour in water and pour in oil upon it, and the oil uh, will rise above. Pour in oil, pour in water upon it, and the oil will swim above. If you keep the usual order, order, oil will be uppermost. If you change the order, it will still be uppermost. And then he says, charity never fails. So that's him reflecting on this same reading, saying, this is about love. And love, like oil, will always rise to the top. And so in some ways, that would resolve this story really simply. But like I alluded to at the beginning, the conflict, the tension, the rising tension in this story is that the groom seems to be delayed. The groom is not there when they expect him to be there. And that for us raises one of the most fundamental challenges in the whole of the Christian life, which is what do we do with unmet expectations? What do we do in our life when we think something's supposed to go one way and it doesn't go the way we expect it? It goes another way and we're left in this place of confusion. Uh, Our bishop, Todd Hunter, um, I was at a retreat once and he said this as a passing comment and I jotted it down because I thought there's something profoundly true to this. He said, there is one one of the greatest causes of frustration and exhaustion in the Christian life is unmet expectations. And so if you as a Christian are feeling exhausted or feeling frustrated, he said it's probably because somewhere in your life you're struggling and wrestling through unmet expectations. And that's not a new thing. That's something that we as followers of the Lord have struggled with since the earliest of times. What happened to the people of Israel when Moses didn't come down from Mount Sinai when they expected him to? That's an unmet expectation. And so they take matters into their own hands. They build a golden calf to worship as a God. Fundamentally, that is them having an unmet expectation of how Moses would lead them, and by extension, how God would lead them, and therefore acting uh, in their own way, their own timing as a result. What do we then do when our expectations and God's timing seem out of sync? So often, so often, we assume God is because of this uninvolved or uninterested in the cares and concerns of our life, and so we become masters of our own destiny. We say, it must be then up to me to figure out a way forward, especially in seasons of impatience, in seasons of weariness, if we're feeling resentful towards the Lord, all of this can take root in our lives. And it is a struggle. Jesus in this story tells a story of struggle. Think about the middle of the night, symbolically, poetically. The middle of the night is the the depths of darkness. It is when it is the hardest to stay attentive. 
He's not saying stay attentive at 11 a.m. when you've had a good night's sleep. He's saying, no, it's going to be hard. It is hard for you to keep your lamp filled in the midst of this struggle, in the height of your weariness. And maybe that's a phrase that sums up 2020 for you. Maybe 2020 is the height of your weariness. Um, Jesus says, stay attentive, keep watch. I think of his words in the garden. When it's hard to keep watch, he says, can't you watch with me for just one hour? He knows it is hard, especially when he seems to be delayed, when there is no end in sight. Yet he says, press on courageously. Continue to look for the day when all will be made right. The Old Testament beautifully speaks to this in Habakkuk. Chapter two, verse three, it says, if the final day seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come and do not delay. So, the last movement, and we'll wrap up here. The last movement in the story is one of surprise. The groom does eventually come, but comes when no one's expecting it. So they have an expectation that's not met, and then the groom does arrive, and then the question is, are they ready as he does? Because half of them are, but half of them are unprepared. They realize they don't have what they need for the guest to arrive. And this is what's fascinating. It's not that there's a lack of oil. If you read the story closely, the, the shops were filled with oil. They could go get it. They could go buy it. And yet, it took time. And so the kind of the poetic irony in this story is they're off at the store, having gotten word that the groom's coming. They're off buying oil. And when they come back to the bride's home, no one's there because they were off buying it. It's not that it wasn't available. And if we extend that then, if oil is a life of compassion and charity, there's not a limit on a life of love. Every single one of us has an invitation before us to live a compassionate life filled with the Spirit of God, and yet it takes time. It takes time to cultivate that way of life. It takes time to make sure an oil lamp is filled and prepared and ready. That's the extension of the story here. It's not that it's impossible for any of us to live this way of life. It just requires attentiveness. It requires preparation. It requires of us, I think, realizing, if we want to reflect just on the nature of time, it, it requires that we realize time is not infinite. Time does not extend infinitely in every direction, and therefore there will always be time for us to get around to it. And I think that's a real word of warning in this reading today. Now, not next week, not tomorrow, now is the time to begin cultivating this way of life. Um, in my own life, I feel like I'm running into limitations, into my own physical limitations, the limitations of time. Some of that may be getting older. I'm in my mid-30s, um, which Chris McDaniel would often say is the prime of your decline. <laughs> that was his phrase. So I'm in the prime of my decline. It's what John Mulaney says is not old, you're just moist. <laughs> That's his phrase. <laughs> um, We'll, we'll leave that to the imagination if that's true or not. Um, but I, I, my first boss, the first priest I ever worked for, he told me when I was in my early 20s at the time, and he was in his late 60s at the time, he said, you right now feel like your life is an ever-expanding horizon, just going out like this. And he said, at some point in the not-too-distant future, even if you're out here, it's going to do this, and it's going to curve inward. And with each passing year, you will feel it kind of progressively moving a little bit closer, the narrowing of your horizon. And I feel like I'm, I'm at that point where I've uh, passed that point. And with that, each passing year, you realize uh, things you thought you could infinitely have time for and get around to if you so wanted, um, 
it's just not gonna happen. You cannot be everything you ever thought you would be. I mean, as a kid, you know, we all think, like, I'm gonna grow up and be an astronaut. I'm, I'm not gonna be an astronaut. There is not enough time, even if I wanted to be. Uh, I will never be a paleontologist. <laughs> I will never be an NBA player, um, even though I was, you know, a giant at 13 years old. Like, that ship has sailed. Uh, and those are kind of silly examples, but there are actually more real and concrete examples we have to tend to. Uh, I am a parent. I have three little kids. Uh, they are halfway through their childhood. And I can't say, eventually, I'll get around to being the parent I want to be. At some point, I, I have to come to terms with the fact that there's a limited amount of time of them under my roof. And for me as a parent, I have to say, I have to tend to this now because I do not have infinite amounts of time. And you may not be a parent. You may have other things you could apply it to, but we have to live with the reality of our limitations and with the fact that time is not infinite. And ultimately, whatever the details of your life may be, we all, if we are longing to know Jesus and to live a life in his kingdom, must realize he will come and we may not be ready. We may not be prepared because we have given our life and given our time in other directions. And so maybe just in a very simple way, I would say today, give your life to things that matter the most. And do it today. Give your life ultimately because we do not know when the Lord will return. And yet we want to be people who are made ready, who are actually um, in and of ourselves, have given ourselves to this way of life. Because you can't pick it up by osmosis. You can't just kind of be surrounded by this way of life and hope that it works out. Um, and I think a lot of us, especially in the South, do that sort of thing. Remember in this story, Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride, and we are the servants. And we, many of us, have spent our lives tending to the bride. We've been around the church, very familiar with her customs and her way of life, what it's like to live a Christian life. And the faith that we live is absolutely communal and corporate. But Jesus in the story also says, you can't rely on someone else's faith to make sure you're ready. You and I each have a personal call to holiness, a personal call to tend to this way of life in our lives. Because Jesus says, you could go your entire life like this, yet then show up having known the bride, known her other attendants, and yet show up and the Lord will say, truly, I do not know you. That's where our story ends today. It's a hard word. And it's a hard season. It's hard to say we have the courage and the energy and the strength to do this. We're in a season of life where a week feels like a few months, it seems. We were talking before the service. None of us could believe Halloween was a week ago. That was one weekend ago. It feels like two months ago. And next week will feel the same. Like that's the way in which our life goes and it brings with it a burden and a weight in this season. So I know this is hard. And yet Jesus also knows that. He says this is going to require an incredible amount of attentiveness and purpose and intentionality. And yet when he comes, he will find some whose lamps are burning, who've loved God with all they have, who've loved their neighbors as themselves, and some who have not. And so take those words to heart um, and evaluate your own life. Evaluate your own life with the Lord this week and say, am I attentive? Am I cultivating this way of life where when the Lord comes, I will be ready? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. As you're able, would you please stand as we affirm our faith together in the words of the Nicene Creed.